The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? This episode of Chinese Whispers is going to be something slightly different. Instead of taking a look at a theme within China, my guest and I will be seeing China through the eyes of the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud. Professor Craig Clunas, Chair of Art History at Oxford University, has curated a new exhibition at London's Freud Museum, which displays the psychoanalyst's collection of Chinese antiquities. On this episode, I'll be talking to Craig about what these pieces, jades and figurines, meant to Freud, especially in the context of 20th century Europe, where there was appreciation of Chinese art, but, as we will discuss, not quite the matching level of knowledge. We'll also chat about the reception of Freud's theories in China, especially given the country's turbulent intellectual history since the May 4th movement a hundred years ago. The exhibition itself is small but fascinating and runs until June 26th. Craig Cluners, welcome to Chinese Whispers. To start with, can you tell us about Freud's collection? What Chinese items are found in there? Well, Freud had a big collection of antiquities with about 2,000 objects in it, and the Chinese things are a relatively small proportion of that numerically, so there's probably not more than a hundred Chinese objects one way or another. Although they do include some of the larger objects in Freud's collection. Freud was comfortably off towards the end of his life, but certainly when he started collecting he wasn't that well off, and so he bought mostly small things. They're not huge objects, huge artworks. So He started collecting antiquities in the 1890s, the mid-1890s, when he was in his 40s. And he obviously, he started by collecting Greek and Roman things and a certain amount of Egyptian things. Things that were connected with a kind of education he'd had as a well-educated middle-class citizen of of the Habsburg Empire in the 19th century. He appears to have turned more towards collecting Chinese things in the latter part of his life. We know that partly because we have a diary from the last year, decade of his life, a diary he started keeping in 1929 and which goes through to more or less his death in 1939. And he often records in that the purchase of antiquities. So quite a lot of the Chinese things can be linked to entries in this diary. And certainly it's in that last decade of his life that he starts to collect ceramic tomb figures, things in Tang style, the kind of horses, camels, human figures that are typical of of the Tang period. He also collected a certain amount of Buddhist sculpture 
and he also collected, and this might have gone back to a bit early, he was very fond of jade, so he, he loved sort of small, sparkly things. He was a great <laughs> fan of jewellery, he would often give jewellery as presents to male as well as female friends. What there isn't anything of, and what Freud clearly wasn't at all interested in, is, for example, porcelain. There's no Chinese porcelain. Mm. So it's a distinctive kind of collection, and I think the Chinese things in his collection were acquired to fit in with the aesthetic of the Greek and Roman and Egyptian things that he already had. And they do that quite comfortably. They sort of, when you see them en masse, they're things that fit in with that. But it's sculpture and carving that he liked and the human and animal figure. It's it's not vases and plates and that sort of thing. Interesting. And unfortunately for him, it does seem like the vast majority of his collection were modern fakes or imitations done at the turn of that century anyway. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I'm not sure the vast majority, but certainly a high proportion, both of the tomb figures, the so-called Tang tomb figures, and the Buddhist sculpture, a high proportion of those are, well, let's call a spade a spade and accept that they're fakes. You know, they're objects that were made in China in the 1920s and 1930s. They were made for the collector market, both for kind of Western tourists in China and Chinese collectors, and they were exported in, in quite large numbers for sale to collectors there. And so Freud's level of knowledge about the things that he was buying was, you know, had its limitations. The people he was asking for advice, their knowledge had its limitations. I think the dealers he was buying from in Vienna and possibly in other European cities too, their knowledge had its limitations too. I don't think there's any, there's no thought in my mind that the dealers he bought from knew that they were selling him things that weren't real. I think this is really a testament to the kind of low levels of knowledge about Chinese archaeology and Chinese antiquities that were present in Europe. If he'd been buying, I don't know, say Ming or Sung porcelain, then maybe kind of people knew about that sort of stuff more. But mm. I think one of the things we have to remember is that Tang tomb figures were very much a new kind of, of archaeological artifact. They were new on the market in the 20s and 30s. And Certainly European collectors and European dealers in particular had no access to the points in China where these things were being excavated. So they didn't have any kind of fixed points of authenticity where they could kind of gauge them from. And certainly Freud's not the only collector who was ending up acquiring things that turn out not to be real, including, you know, quite important and quite famous museums. They've all got a certain amount of dodgy stuff that they don't show. But the Freud collection, yeah, does have quite a significant number of of non-genuine pieces. And in fact, I think the jades are not so much fakes, but they're not very old. I mean, they're, they're mm. mostly kind of late Qing or Republican period things. They're the kind of things that were being made, again, for a tourist and collector market at the time that Freud was buying them. And Craig, I want to talk more about the Europe of that time and how Chinese art was received at that time. But before I do that, maybe a note of information for our listeners, which is just that the last 600 years of imperial China was the Qing and the Ming dynasties, which is the periods that you've mentioned with the porcelains being very dominant in that. Presumably, when you talk about the Tang artefacts, that's because that was much older. Can you just tell us yeah. what that history is? How yeah. much older are we talking about yeah. here? 
Sure. So the dates of the Tang period, 618 to 906. So, you know, that's about a thousand years before Freud's time, or before Freud's birth in the middle of the 19th century. And that's one of the periods when China is very much connected to other parts of Asia across what comes to be called the Silk Road. And of course, it's kind of interesting to me that the term Silk Road which was coined by German-speaking archaeologists and art historians in Freud's lifetime, that's a term which is starting to be used for these trade routes that connect China to Western Asia, to Iran, what is now Iran and Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. And so there's a great deal of interest in Western Europe at that time, also connected with archaeological excavations in Mm. what is now Xinjiang, in the west of the People's Republic of China, archaeological excavations conducted by people like the Frenchman Paul Pelio and the Hungarian Oral Stein, who worked for the British Imperial Survey of India. He was a, he was a servant of the British Empire, and he was responsible for the removal of objects from Dunhuang, objects which are now kind of scattered in museums around the world, including in London. So this was a period, the Tang period, as I say, you know, the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries, was a period that a lot of interest was focused on. I think one of the things that's worth saying is that these Tang tomb figures, figures of humans, figures of animals, camels, horses, these had not been things that any Chinese collector was collecting prior to the early 20th century. So if you go back to the the Ming and Qing periods, these tomb figures didn't form part of the kinds of things that connoisseurs and collectors of the Ming and Qing were interested in having. However, that's changing in China as well. At the very end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, there's a new interest and with the development of archaeology within China itself. So I, I want to stress it's not just... Western collectors who are interested in this kind of stuff. Chinese collectors and antiquarians and scholars are beginning to be really interested in this sort of material as well and are beginning to build up collections of both genuine and and inevitably a certain quantity of fake things too. And is that novelty through the archaeological expeditions why there was that knowledge gap in Europe when it came to that? Because in the Freud's house, which is now the museum, the collection of Egyptian and Greco-Roman things, presumably they are much more highly likely to be authentic things. So the people, his dealers, knew much more about those Uh, cultural artefacts than about the Chinese ones. Yeah, I think that's right. Although the Greek and Roman and Egyptian things are not without fakes as well, particularly the Egyptian things. And, And often there are things which are not... Among the Egyptian collection in particular, there are things which are not outright fakes, but which have been improved in some way. (laughs) <laughs> for the art market. The literature on Freud, you know, people who knew him, there are kind of differing accounts about how good his own knowledge was. So some people stress mm. that he was like really very, very well informed. And he certainly read a great deal about Greek and Roman and ancient Egyptian things. And one of the great mysteries for me is that Freud's huge library, which has, you know, lots of books about antiquities and archaeology and so on, Freud seems to have not been interested in reading about China. You know, there was plenty of stuff he could have read and he didn't. There are people probably around he could have asked who knew more. The standards in the 1920s, 1930s, maybe not so high, but for example, Vienna in the 1930s had a very active 
Society for the Friends of Asian Art, which meant East Asian art. So there were lots of collectors who presumably had quite big libraries. The man that Freud used to take his kind of Asian things to was a man at the big museum in Vienna, the Kunsthistorisches Museum, called von Demel. And von Demel was an Egyptologist. He knew about ancient Egypt, but he he was kind of responsible for the whole of Asia. And so he would give Freud (laughs) kind of opinions we know that Freud got von Demel to write little kind of certificates of his opinion of what things were. And some of these survive, but none of them survive for any of the Chinese things. So so we're in the dark. Mostly we're in the dark as to what Freud was told these things were or what he himself kind of thought they were. That's so fascinating. I mean, this idea of the Orient as including, you know, North Africa, mm. the Middle yeah, East, yeah. East Asia, South Asia, you know, going to an Egyptologist for advice on Chinese things. I mean, yeah, I mean, Freud was born in 1856. So he is very much a man formed in many ways in the mindset of the 19th century, although his ideas were kind of revolutionary in many ways and so on. But in terms of his ideas about the East, you know, about Asia, I think we have to see him as very much somebody who had the the set of kind of prejudices and and mental boundaries and so on that were common among educated people kind of in western europe at that time so he he's not unusual so the idea i mean the idea of having one man looking after the east yeah you know it strikes us <laughs> as kind of a bit crazy now and who knows what von Demel felt about being given this responsibility but there were people in Vienna in this society for eastern art that Freud could have asked and it's kind of interesting that one of Freud's closest boyhood friends his closest personal friend who was an archaeologist of Greek and Roman things a man called Emmanuel Lurvey Lurvey was a member of this society so Freud certainly knew it existed That's why I think we're almost entitled to say that Freud makes a quasi-deliberate decision to not know too much about the Chinese things, to collect them, to buy them, to enjoy them, to get pleasure out of them. But he doesn't want to see them as the object of the same kind of scholarship as the Greek and Roman things he just he just sort of doesn't want to do that for reasons that we that we don't really know but you know we can speculate about but we don't really know well I wonder and this is my speculation from seeing the exhibition which is just how much of these things were there as an instrument for his work as an analogy for his work and just on the jade for example his appreciation for jade I thought the exhibition was really interesting in saying that in Chinese culture jade has this kind of in-between symbolism between life and death and that for Freud was very interesting as a psychological concept so was he using these things as kind of instruments for his work well I think his whole collection you know it's very important to him but it's important to remember that it's very much part of his working life we're fortunate to have this really detailed record of Freud's apartment in Vienna just before he left in 1938. In 1938, a photographer smuggled a camera into the apartment. You know, there are Nazi guards on the stairs. He smuggles a camera into the apartment and he takes this really detailed record. You know, because Freud was globally famous. People were interested in Lots of people thought, this is important. We need to know where these great ideas were formed. And one of the things that that makes very clear is that the collection of antiquities 
is not spread throughout the apartment, but is absolutely concentrated in Freud's study and in his consulting room where he saw his patients. So if you went to Freud's apartment and went to have dinner or, you know, where he ate his meals, where his bedroom was, where he read the newspaper in the evening, there's none of the collection. The collection is crammed onto every surface in his study, his desk, cabinets in his desk, the consulting room, patients lying on the famous psychoanalytic couch are surrounded by the collection. So for Freud, I think the collection is something that he uses to think with and think about, you know. And we know that he touched things, he handled things, he moved them about. He sometimes talked to patients about objects in the collection, although we've got no evidence that he ever said anything about any of the Chinese objects. And I do think, therefore, that you're right, that we're entitled to think of this as part of his professional and intellectual life and not simply, it's not just decoration, it's not just like something to make the apartment look nicer you know that that <laughs> yeah. has a completely different you know the dining room in Freud's apartment has a completely different aesthetic from his study okay so given this context can we also talk about Freud's fascination with the language of Chinese because he was also interested in that professionally mm. well I, I think fascination might be going too far but okay but he does home in on the Chinese language at a very important point in his thinking which is unusual. He doesn't he doesn't write a lot about China, but in the middle of this First World War, he gave a series of lectures which were published as a book called Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis. And these are a very important part of Freud's thinking because he's trying to get his ideas across to a to a relatively large audience. So he uses a lot of analogies, you know, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like that. He tries to make them interesting. And at one point, he's talking about dreams. Now, dreams, as we all know, dreams are crucially important for Freud. Freud described dreams as the royal road to the unconscious. And so the interpretation of dreams is, is absolutely central to the whole kind of psychoanalytic enterprise. And he says, you know, what is like dreams? You know, we all have dreams and they have a particular kind of flavour. They're the sort of weird stuff happens in them and we don't often know we often don't know quite what's going on and they sort of make sense but they sort of don't make sense and then he says well he makes an analogy between the interpretation of dreams and the chinese language because he's got hold of this idea and I'll talk in a minute about where he gets hold of this idea <laughs> he's got hold of this idea that chinese is vague and indistinct, you know, that it's a sort of fuzzy language in which it's hard to say things kind of precisely. Now, obviously, anybody who knows Chinese knows this just like isn't true. But Freud <laughs> didn't know Chinese and he'd gotten hold of this idea. And so he says, well, you know, so Chinese, which is a language, he says, it's actually spoken by you know, millions and millions of people today it has the same thing. I mean, he doesn't say that it's got no meaning, but he says you can only understand it in context. Yeah, and in an open notebook in the exhibition, he wrote that Chinese had no grammar and that a word can mean many things at once. I mean, obviously, the language has homonyms and homophones, but yeah. characters still mean something. Yeah, and that's a common, I mean, it's a well-known thing, you know, 
people who've never learned Chinese but have heard something about it think that, you know, there's this terrible thing that it's got these tones and if you get the tones wrong, you might say something kind of completely insulting and start a fight. And so and, and anybody who's actually learned Chinese or speaks Chinese as a native knows it. it's, you know, it's not like that. It works differently from an Indo-European language like English or German, but that doesn't mean that it's vague or indistinct. It just works differently. So Freud kind of homes in on this nature of, of Chinese in the introductory kind of essays. Much later on in the 1920s, he gets a letter from the Chinese philosopher Zhang Shijiao. Now, Zhang Shijiao was somebody who was very interested in Freud's ideas and, and had indeed translated Freud's autobiography from German into Chinese. But Zhang Shijiao has obviously read the new Chinese translation of the introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, and he writes to Freud and says, more or less, kind of, you know, come off it. Where did you get this idea? <laughs> That's kind of how I felt when I... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what were you talking about? Kind of, you know. And, and Freud writes back to him this kind of, I don't know if it's an embarrassed letter. I don't think Freud was an easily embarrassed man. But he writes back and says, well, I got this from the Encyclopedia Britannica. And, of course, you say that, and it sounds a bit like I got it on Wikipedia. But, you know, I think we need to remember that the Encyclopedia Britannica, especially the 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which we know is what, what Freud looked, this had a very high status, and its essays you know, are signed by major authorities. And indeed, the essay on the Chinese language that Freud must have read is written by Herbert Giles, who was professor of Chinese at Cambridge. So was a major authority and actually himself spoke Chinese really well. I mean, we have evidence from Chinese visitors who went to see Giles that Giles' spoken Chinese was really good. He'd lived in China for a very long time. But so it's his essay on the Chinese language in which he kind of talks about this kind of indeterminacy or kind of lack of a formal grammar that's what gave Freud this idea. Now, there's an interesting issue there because I don't believe that Freud sat... Nobody sits down and reads the Encyclopedia Britannica all the way through. So Freud must have first got hold of this idea mm. from somewhere else and then gone and looked it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica and kind of firmed up this idea. But it's kind of interesting to me that if you want to think about, you know, Freud's... A lot of Freud's Chinese objects are wrong in the sense that they're not genuine and kind of the major point in Freud's writing where he kind of turns towards Chinese thought is wrong <laughs> as well so the point of the exhibition is not to say hey Freud was a great you know expert on China he wasn't you know there are other people around most particularly the psychologist psychoanalyst Carl Jung who had been Freud's great friend and was now Freud's great enemy by the 1920s. Jung was really interested in Chinese philosophy. He tried to read up about it. He was great friends with a, a German professor called Richard Wilhelm, who had translated the I Ching, the Book of Changes, into German. And Jung was really interested in kind of what Chinese philosophy and Chinese thought might do to our understanding. Freud doesn't seem to have had that same mm. degree, that same degree of interest. For him, it's, as I say, and again, this is, I think, you know, to do with his his formation, essentially, as a, as a man of the 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't 
pick on these issues as a way of saying or to judge him ahistorically. But I think it is it is interesting mm. what he says about that time. I do wonder whether or not it would be harsh of me to generalize to other people, to European society of that time. Craig is an art historian of Chinese things. You know about chinoiserie, you know, the, the popularity of Chinese and Japanese looking things in European fine society without really this commitment to understanding their roots. And mm. to me, you know, that's interesting because it feels like it's a parallel to how Europeans treated China politically as well. You go into the country, you identify these beautiful things for their aesthetic taste, but you don't ha- actually meaningfully engage, which I think is a fascinating notion, which Freud is only mm. one individual in. And it's it's funny that, you know, a lot of it is very surface level. This idea of Chinese-ness, and even in his naming his dogs, because he had chow chows, didn't he, which were these kind of Chinese dogs. And in the exhibition, it says that he gave them Chinese-sounding names. So he didn't even bother to find out if they were Chinese words that he was calling them, just yeah. Chinese-sounding names. yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's right. I mean, Freud is absolutely a man of his time. And I think his time is a very interesting time, because if you think, you know, he's born in 1856, which is, you know... Between the two opium wars. You know, between the two opium wars, the Qing dynasty at that point is in kind of all kinds of trouble. The Taiping rebellion inside, it's being battered by kind of Western imperialism. You know, and he dies in 1939 when China is again in all kinds of trouble, you know, the war of resistance to Japan and so on. But it's a completely different China. Freud's lifetime spans that period of kind of colossal change from the Qing dynasty to to the Republican period. And also, you know, a certain amount of change. You know, he also spans the period during which there begins to be some kind of serious Western scholarship about China. So by the time Freud dies, there are people who are kind of making an effort to learn the language, making an effort to understand, to kind of engage with Chinese scholarship Mm. and Chinese ideas. So he spans that across his lifetime in quite an interesting way. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, Craig, which is that my mother is an antiques dealer specialising in Ming and Qing ceramics in London. And, you know, there are people like you, people like her colleagues in Europe today who really deeply understand Chinese art, historical Chinese art. When do you think that changed? As in, when did Europe become so expert in that? You know, what was that process like over the 20th century, do you think? Or was it area by area that ceramics were one of the first to get breakthrough? I think you're quite right. It's area by area. And it's different in different parts of the world. So, you know, there comes to be a level of expertise in relation to Chinese ceramics in London by the period, you know, after the First World War, possibly even, even before the First World War. But at that same period, you know, expertise in relation to, say, Chinese painting is, is kind of still much lower. And so Britain has a slightly different history from the United States, for example, and both of them have a slightly different history from collecting in Germany. But I do think the interwar period you know, is absolutely crucial in terms of the formation of kind of professional understanding. It's certainly the period when lots of expertise... So if we take somebody like Percival David and the Percival David collection, Percival David is, is, for example, travelling to China in the 1920s. He's visiting the Palace Museum in Beijing when it's first opened. 
He's interacting with dealers in Beijing. He's interacting with collectors in Beijing. You know, and that wasn't happening at all in the 19th century, whereas it is happening by the 1920s and 1930s. Is it uncharitable for me to think that that's because of the influx of loot coming from China, as well, especially after the Second Opium War? The loot has something to do with it, I think. It certainly brings stuff of a higher quality kind of onto the Western market. So I think it's definitely one factor, absolutely. I don't think it's the only factor. I think it's an important factor, but I don't think it's the only factor. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to also talk a little bit about Freud in China as well, because as you already mentioned, he was globally famous. In the 1920s, that was when Freud starts to be translated into Chinese. Can we start there? What is mm. that like? How is he mm. received? Well, he starts to be talked about in the teens. So the scholar who's done the most work on this, she's identified 1913 as the first year when an article on Freud's thought was published in a Chinese journal. And that's pretty much the same as when he starts to be known about in Britain. I mean, there's not a great time lag, it seems to me. Interesting. Freud becomes globally famous in the last three decades of his life. And that would be true of Britain. So so he, he becomes a name in... China pretty much at the same time as he's becoming a name in Japan, in India, in Latin America and kind of in the rest of Europe. Sometimes they're being translated into Chinese from the English rather than from the German. So for example we know that the the first translation of the introductory lectures on psychoanalysis was a double translation. That is, it was translated from German into English and then from English into Chinese. And then sometimes from Japanese as well, is that right? Some of them came from Japanese. And remember that lots of Chinese intellectuals in the in the 1920s in particular are very kind of connected to intellectual life in Tokyo and they're reading stuff yeah. and kind of passing back and forth. There are lots of people studying in Japan, you know. Exiled in Japan. <laughs> well, they're not, well, there are people who are politically exiled, but after the fall of the Qing, there are there are people who just go there for a higher education. And there are lots of Japanese intellectuals who are who are interested in being in China. So, so this global kind of swirling of Freud's ideas. But then there's the whole kind of, if you like, the popular reception of Freud, that is people who've never heard about you know, we can all make jokes about Freud and the Oedipus complex and boys loving their mother and so on, even if we've never read a word of actual actual Freud. So his key ideas, and in particular, the association of Freud, you know, Freud's ideas about infant sexuality mean that he becomes the guy who talks about sex. <laughs> so, so that for broad audiences, and this would be true of a broad audience in Britain and a broad audience in China, Freud is thought of as kind of racy and dangerous and (laughs) kind of slightly... Now, I mean, Freud's readings are absolutely not exciting in that way at all, but the fact that he's kind of talking about these things and kind of getting them out in the open, it's very controversial. It's very controversial in Britain and it's very controversial in China. So there are lots of people, and in, in some ways... Freud's impact on China in the 20s and 30s, I think his biggest impact is is in the world of literature. You know, it's in the world of writers, you know, fiction writers, particularly the Shanghai writers of the so-called new sensationalist school, you know, who, who are writing much more explicitly about sexuality, about desire, for whom kind of Freud is a sort of 
Peter and Saint in the background, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've ever kind of sat down and read Freud's works. Yeah. So there's, there, I think there's a difference between what Freud himself actually wrote and what people kind of make of his his ideas as they circulate in journalism and in magazines and in in fiction in particular. Yeah, and I mean, that's the curse of the popularised intellectual, isn't it? That your ideas yeah. are taken in a kind of ersatz and simplified way. And there's also the period of China, which, as you say, the Qing dynasty has fallen by this point. But 1919 is when the May 4th movement happens. Young people are talking about Mr. Democracy and Mr. Science, yeah. wanting modernization, which often meant westernization as well. But there was still a traditional part of China, right? I mean, you've suggested that he was seen as a, quite a racy, kind of exciting kind of writer. But... How did that particularly land in Chinese culture? Because Chinese culture has a particularly conservative attitude towards sex and with something like the Oedipal complex. You know, it's a very deeply filial society as well, you know, to think that you would accuse a Chinese man of wanting to have sex with his mother. How did that play? Well, I mean, that's a shocking idea in Britain as well. You <laughs> that's know? fair enough, yeah. You know, at that time. That, that is not an idea that, that, that kind of... I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say, you know, there's no difference between Chinese and British culture. Obviously, that would be ridiculous. But the shockingness of Freud's ideas is, is kind of almost equally shocking right. kind of in every part of the world. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things, you know, that's come out of this exhibition for me is, is learning about the work of other scholars who are beginning to investigate this. And, you know, I mean, obviously people were saying this in China at the time. So it's not like everybody's saying, oh, this is great. We all love this. You know, there are lots of people who are saying, well, we think this is interesting, but we like this and don't like this bit. So, for example, Gaoju Fu, who is the man who translated the introductory lectures in psychoanalysis into Chinese, he's very explicit that the theory of infant sexuality is, or that Freud's obsession with sexuality is the bit of Freud that he just can't take, he just can't stomach, right? <laughs> he just doesn't like. But, of course, that's also true of Freud's, you know, major European opponents. So, for example, Jung... The big break between Jung and Freud is over this issue of infant sexuality because Jung doesn't buy that either. So Freud is always a figure of controversy then and indeed now. You know, I mean, he's always been a, a kind of controversial figure. But one of the other things that I've to come back to other scholarship that I've learned about is, you know, people are beginning to look at, you know, the very first attempts to make Freud work with Chinese thought. I mean, by Chinese thinkers, you know, people are saying, well, we don't like that bit, but we like this bit. This is kind of interesting. Can we use this? This is, and how does this relate to stuff that's in kind of the Chinese cultural and literary and philosophical heritage? Can we make that kind of work together? So just in a way like Freud is using his Chinese things to think with, Chinese thinkers are using Freud to think with. They're not like buying it en masse or taking it, yeah. taking on the whole thing. And people have always picked and chosen with Freud, you know, the bits that were meaningful to them and that they liked and the bits that they kind of didn't like. And so right from the beginning, people are saying, well, you know, which is a position that is still held by some scholars today, that, you know, this is very interesting, but it doesn't work in China at all. You know, it only has any relevance to to the history of Western thought. It doesn't work in China at all. And then there are other people in China saying, well, no, but we like this bit, but not that bit. Mm -hmm. There aren't many people saying we buy the whole thing, but then there aren't many people anywhere 
saying we buy the whole thing a lock, stock and yeah. barrel. Yeah, of course. And that intellectual conversation is stoppered by the communist takeover in 1949. But am I right in thinking that to some extent it's coming back now with reform and opening with the growing wealth of China, growing modernization, cosmopolitanism? Yeah. In the 1980s, Freud's works begin to be republished and there start to be new translations and works that haven't been translated before. And there's a bit of a, you know, like in the 1980s, you get this whole series of culture crazes, you know, Wen Hua Re kind of crazes for things. And there's a kind of Freud craze in the 1980s. So this is not my field. So I'd be very cautious about what I say to it. But, but my sense now is that there's no way in which like Freud is hot news in China today because he's been part of the conversation yeah. for 35 years, you know, for a whole generation of scholars and thinkers and people who are interested in mental health practice or the, the theory of psychoanalysis in China today. Freud, it's not like, oh, wow, Freud. People have been thinking about it and writing about it for at least 35 years now, since the middle of the 1980s. And it's kind of, you know, I, I find it kind of touching that somebody like Gao Jiefu, it reminds you of the kind of very compressed nature of 20th century Chinese sister, like Gao Jiefu, who was one of the first people to talk about Freud in the 1920s. He was still around in the 1980s. He had lived as an important kind of a psychiatrist in China in the period after 1949, a period when Freud could not be talked about and his works could not be published and kind of psychiatry in China took different routes and different different courses. You know, but he's still around in the 1980s and I think lives into the 1990s to talk about these ideas again. So it was possible within one lifetime to see Freud arrive, be talked about, the discussion be shut down, then the discussion be opened up again. And, you know, in his lifetime spans that whole whole process. Yeah, I mean, it really goes to show that history does just come full circles, isn't it? I wonder, I mean, I brushed over this just now, but with the communist years, was that a deliberate thing to to shut down discussions about Freud? Was there something in particular about his theories or was it just a more general, you know, Western thought? Very, no, very much so. So there had been a debate about Freud in the Soviet Union in the 1930s under Stalin and the official party line had been that psychoanalysis was bourgeois and wrong and not to be talked about and not to be used. And in a sense, in 1949, the colossal influence of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. the Soviet Union had a very big influence on China's educational structures, its medical system. In all kinds of ways, there was a kind of look. So in a way, China in 1949 simply imported that Soviet kind of prohibition on Freud. It would be interesting to know because, I mean, increasingly there's some really interesting scholarship on intellectual life in the Mao era. And there's a lot more kind of talking about things. Gao Jiafu, who had been like one of the major Chinese interpreters of Freud in the 1920s, as I say, he's working and living in China through the 50s, through the 60s. This stuff is still in his head. Did he ever have private conversations with colleagues? Did he talk to students? I think we need to imagine that there's a lot more going on in the intellectual life of China in the period when Mao Zedong was alive. And we certainly know this in regard to literature, that Western literature was still, you know, it might not be being published, but people were still reading it, people were still circulating it. 
just because a thing doesn't have public visibility yeah. doesn't mean that that nobody knows about it. So especially, I th- I wonder among, you know, mental health professionals in China, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, people who had been alive in the twenties and thirties and who had been exposed to these ideas, to what extent were they still? talking among themselves in a kind of subdued fashion but talking among themselves about these ideas so that when it becomes possible in the 1980s to publish and to discuss these things openly again there had been that subterranean strand i i don't know anything about that i haven't seen anything published on that but i think mm. it would be an interesting line of research to pursue yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And thank you for giving me an idea for another episode of this podcast. Mm. Craig Kalinas, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. And you can catch the exhibition itself until June 26th at the Freud Museum. Now to hear more about the intellectual history of China during the last century, do check out my episode on the May 4th movement and its impact with Professor Rana Mitter. Link will be in the description. Thanks for listening to this episode. As ever, if you enjoyed it, do leave a rating and a review. <laughs>